We are in the book of Habakkuk for a few weeks, so if you'd want to open your Bible there or navigate on your device, your phone, or your tablet. The Old Testament minor prophet Habakkuk. We're going to be looking at uh, chapter 1 and the first verse of chapter 2. That's our text. The topic we'll find there, Habakkuk compares himself to a watchman on the ramparts as he waits for God to bring the Chaldeans against Judah. The title of our message, Or the Ramparts We Watch. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thanks for our morning. And I pray that each one of us would have a sense of your presence in this place and in our lives. That we would know, Lord, that you've brought us to this place in our life and physically here, Lord, to, to listen to your word. To be excited, Lord, just knowing that you speak to us. To be directed and guided and blessed, Lord. And I pray that you would help us work through these verses and that we would say things that are important, that are meaningful, that are purposeful, and that would help us to fall in love with you more and more. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Sylvester Stallone is definitely making Rocky 7, but not until after he does Rambo 5. In the Rocky sequel, Apollo Creed's privileged grandson takes up boxing. He wants Rocky to be his mentor. It's going to be a slugfest. In the Rambo sequel, Stallone has hinted that John Rambo will go out in a blaze of glory. can only hope that's true. That's movie talk for a ton of violence. In the first four installments, Rambo killed a total of 219 bad guys. He, did, uh, he killed 128 with his shirt on, and he killed 91 with his shirt off. He's far more effective with his shirt on, but I think he's deadlier with his shirt off. Now, I want to talk a little bit about violence, and you'll see why in just a moment. Without making any judgments, without applying any personal or political spin, I just want to point out that violence has been a story in the United States in 2014. We all became familiar with Ferguson, Missouri, where civil disorder characterized by violence began the day after the fatal shooting of Michael Brown back in August. Just recently, two uniformed New York Police Department officers, heroes, were shot dead assassination style as they sat in their marked police car on a Brooklyn street corner. Violence was big news in the NFL when on September 8, TMZ Sports released a video of Baltimore Ravens running back Ray Rice punching his fiancée and dragging her unconscious body out of an elevator. Carolina Panthers defensive end Greg Hardy was convicted of assaulting an ex-girlfriend in June. Every television set since I believe the year 2000 is mandated to be equipped with a V chip so parents can block inappropriate violent contact, or, or programming rather, content. Violence of another terrible kind is rampant in that our nation ranks number four in the world after China, the Russian Federation, and Vietnam in the total number of abortions that are performed annually. I'm not going to try to make the elusive connection between violence on film and in real life. I'm not here to tell you to boycott violent movies and television shows. I'm not going to try to establish that violence is at some kind of all-time high. I'm not going to suggest any causes for violence. I'm simply noting that violence is something that seems to characterize our society. That's not good news if you're reading the Old Testament minor prophet Habakkuk. 
His complaint spoken to God was that the nation of Judah had strayed far from godliness. He summarized their backsliding by saying this in verses two and three of chapter one. O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear, even cry out to you violence and you will not save? Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? Plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Wherever Habakkuk looked, whether it was to public policy or in private homes, he could summarize what was wrong by simply saying violence. It was a symptom of the larger problem, the spiritual problem, that Judah had abandoned God. God will answer Habakkuk, but the prophet won't like what he hears. God will tell Habakkuk that he is raising up the nation of Babylon to conquer Judah and to take its people captive. Speaking about the invaders, God says in verse 9, they all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. When violence characterizes a nation, it's not a good thing, and it's likely God will eventually respond in kind. In fact, when God brought the global flood in the days of Noah, his own commentary was, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Jesus let us know in his Olivet Discourse that the end times would be as the days of Noah, which certainly includes violence. God won't bring another flood. Instead, a terrible time of judgment is decreed. We call it the Great Tribulation. The question we should always ask is, how should we then live as Christians? What's our response? Well, Habakkuk gained a perspective, a spiritual perspective, as he struggled to answer that question. By the end of his book, he could illustrate what he had realized, and he did it by comparing himself and other godly believers to a type of mountain deer that he called a hind. Here's Habakkuk 3.19 in the King James Version. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hinds' feet, and he will make me to walk upon mine high places. For Habakkuk and his countrymen, things were going to get worse and worse. Judgment was coming in the form of the Chaldeans, a people far more violent than the Jews. The godly among them would have to ascend to heights of spirituality they had previously not been familiar with as if they were hinds fleeing the hunter and being driven ever higher. I have no idea God's plans for the United States. I pray for revival. I don't predict judgment, although it's of course possible. Whatever happens, we need to be like the hind, driven to unfamiliar but wondrous high places in our walk with God. We need what I'm calling hind's sight in these last days. And hopefully we can discover our hindsight as we follow Habakkuk to his new spiritual heights. We begin with his initial dialogue with the Lord in chapter one. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, when V is for violence, appeal to the Lord. And number two, when V is for violence, abide in the Lord. Let's see uh, what we mean by appealing to the Lord in chapter one. Now I wanna establish one more Pretty important point before we get into the verses. In this book, God will be dealing with the southern kingdom of Judah as a nation. It has national application before it has personal application. Habakkuk was a victim of the sin all around him, not a target God was aiming at. That may not seem like much of a distinction since he suffered, but it makes all the difference in the world concerning your understanding of the character 
of God. Maybe look at it this way. Often commentators suggest that Habakkuk is asking the why God questions, such as why God do you allow evil or why God do you allow the wicked to prosper? And they go right to this personal application where Habakkuk doesn't understand how God can do that. But that's not really what this book is about. It is about a nation defying God and God acting appropriately, as we'll see, and with warning. And so verse 1, the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. God's prophets often characterize their message as their burden. They certainly did not mean it in the sense that it was to be despised or something they wanted to get rid of. Quite the opposite. They meant by burden an overwhelming sense that they had to share what God had given them. Their message was too important to keep to themselves. They, they were burdened to unload it on others in a good way so that they could understand what the Lord was saying. The gospel of Jesus Christ, you could say, is our burden. It's too important to keep to ourselves. And none of us really want to. We want to share it with others. And so I'd suggest that we pray every day for God to give us opportunities to share Jesus with someone. You know, we have unprecedented opportunities to share the gospel. I don't know what you think about social media, um, whether you like it or whether you don't, whether, you, you know, whether you're even on it, but you can share the gospel with you know, hundreds of people all at once just by mentioning Jesus Christ and talking about what you learned at church or there's so many different ways. Hey, I'm with you. I post pictures of my food. Hey, here's the pie I made. This is the cake I'm eating. Look at me filling my mouth with cheesecake, you know, that kind of thing. But let's try. There's no reason why we can't talk about the Lord as well. And you've got a captive audience. And so, you know, we have an unprecedented opportunity. And all of us, I don't need to rebuke us. We all want to share our faith. I don't know any Christian that doesn't want to share his faith. We might be afraid or timid or whatever. We might need the baptism with the Holy Spirit. But, but this is a burden that we have to see others know Jesus the way we know Jesus. And so pray that the Lord gives you opportunities and take those opportunities. Now, the rest of the book is going to be what Habakkuk saw in the sense of how it unfolds. We know very little about him personally. We know he wrote in the 7th century BC, just as Babylon was rising as a world power. He was a contemporary with Jeremiah, who was also predicting Judah's downfall. In fact, Jeremiah was telling the Jews to surrender to Babylon, and it would go better for them. In verse 2, we read, O long, how shall I cry? O Lord, excuse me, how long shall I cry? And you will not hear, even cry out to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me, there is strife and contention arises. Uh, there was a lot wrong in the nation of Judah, a lot of what he calls iniquity. If you were here for any of our series in Jeremiah, you got an earful of what was wrong with Judah. The Jews were worshiping idols openly. They were involved in disgusting pagan religious rituals. They were practicing child sacrifice. They were oppressing the poor. They took advantage of widows, plundering what little monies they had. Habakkuk sums it all up by using the word violence. Now, we normally think in terms only of physical violence, but it's a word that can have a much broader application. You can do psychological violence to people. You can do uh, a lot of things to people that would be considered violence that, uh, other than punching them in the face. 
And so he looked at their society and says, all of the things that are wrong with our society can be summed up in this word, violence. Habakkuk felt that he had been appealing to the Lord for a long, long time. He could not understand why God had not acted to overcome the violence among his chosen people. He couldn't comprehend how or why God was putting up with it. Too bad Habakkuk didn't have the book of Jeremiah to read. There is an incredible passage that speaks directly to God's dealings with nations. I'll read it to you. It's Jeremiah 18, beginning in verse 7. The Lord is speaking, and he says, The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good which I said I would benefit it. Now, therefore, speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, thus says the Lord, behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you, return now every one from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. Simple, straightforward, obey God and he will benefit your nation, disobey God and he will see to it your nation suffers disaster in an effort to correct your evil ways. And so this is not a mystery of why is God doing this? How can a good God do this? Habakkuk needs to get on track and realize that God is on record as saying, this is how I deal with nations. He's not talking, in the beginning part of Jeremiah, he's not talking about his own nation, Israel, just nations in general. Whether you're a Christian nation or not, if you're a nation that does good and treats people well and you know, those kinds of things, God will bless but when you begin to turn evil and oppress and when violence becomes uh, rampant, then God is going to do something about that. And, and, and he has to because he's a good God and he warns you. And so that's what's going on in this little book. Habakkuk and his fellow Jews in Judah had already seen this happen to the northern kingdom of Israel. They had been overrun by the awful Assyrians. You remember the history of the nation of Israel after the death of Solomon, the country, the kingdom split into two halves. Ten northern tribes uh, became the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, and two southern tribes were called Judah. The nation of Israel to the north had been destroyed, decimated, overrun, taken captive by the Assyrians and scattered throughout the Middle East. And Judah to the south had witnessed this and watched this happen. They did not believe that would happen to them because they had the temple in Jerusalem and they believed God would never allow his temple to be destroyed. He would and he did. There's a fantastic section in the book of Ezekiel that I love where God actually says, I'm leaving the temple now and you follow his presence out of Jerusalem uh, prior to the Babylonian invasion. And so, you know, God, God said, hey, I, I don't need this house. I have a bigger house. It's like a vacation home for me. So, you know, the fact that, oh, the temple, the temple, they saw what happened in the north, and they didn't believe it. Now, I'm not predicting the fall of America. I'm praying for revival. It's actually kind of uh, popular 
for certain ministers to predict the fall of America. It, it's a way of getting people all excited, you know. Uh, there's that famous phrase, if uh, God doesn't judge America, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. And I think generally we, you know, we, oh, yeah. But before we get too into God, you know, you should, I mean, Habakkuk, you know, is, is a very interesting book because we're talking about some serious stuff. We're talking about God bringing nations against our nation. Uh, it'd be like if Red Dawn, remember the two Red Dawn movies? Who, who in the Central Valley hasn't seen Red Dawn 1 and 2? I mean, you know, first it was the Russians, right, and the Cubans back in the, what was it, the 60s? And then the updated version, I think it's the Koreans, you know. So we always have an enemy that's going to attack us. It'd be like Red Dawn being real. Or, or maybe it's like terrorism. You know, we, it doesn't have to be a nation as we know it. You know, we're all geared up to fight other nations on a combat field. And in the meantime, we're, you know, it doesn't take very much to upset the apple cart in the United States in terms of terrorists. And so maybe we're being judged already. I don't know. I'm not into that kind of thing. God hasn't told me. He hasn't told anyone, as far as I'm concerned, that he's judging our nation. And so I'm continuing to pray for revival. But this is how God deals with nations. He warns them and warns them and warns them and warns them. And then he says, I can't warn you anymore. I have to do something about this. It doesn't matter whether you're Judah or Israel or the United States of America. This is God's way. I will say this, no matter how hard you look in the Bible, you're not going to find the United States in prophecy. My theory, not unique to me, is that Jesus will resurrect and rapture the church prior to the tribulation, and our country, if you think about it, will lose so many of its leaders and its citizens that it will be relegated to a much lesser position on the world stage. Whatever you think about the state of the church today in America, if the entire church in the United States were removed in the rapture, with people at all levels of government and the military and law enforcement and everywhere else, it would decimate our nation. It would relegate us immediately to a lower standard. And probably the U.S. will, pro will need to become a part of some North American union with Canada and Mexico, what's left of those countries, in order to survive. And so verse 4, therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Now Habakkuk is suggesting to God that because he does not act, the Jews think his law is powerless over them and they are encouraged to act justly. In other words, they, uh, you know, it, it's like when you're speeding and all of a sudden you see the highway patrolman and he doesn't come after you. You think, wow, I got, I, you know, I got away with that. And then if you keep doing that over and over, pretty soon you're going to be driving 100 miles an hour by that guy if he's never going to pull you over, if there's never any consequences. And so Habakkuk is saying, God, you're not doing anything, and so the people are growing lawless. It's God's fault, he says, for not doing something about it. His seeming hesitation is allowing the wicked to surround the righteous and perverse judgment to proceed. God's hesitation to act is most often, if not always, to give people a chance to repent. He had shown Judah what would happen to them when Assyria destroyed Israel, taking the Jews captive and dispersing them. God is in no hurry to destroy people, to raise up Chaldeans to come and do violence again. He's not in a hurry for that. He would rather they repent. 
And so he had been sending prophets to Judah to warn them of coming judgment unless they repented. At least some of those prophets had pointed out that certain physical calamities such as low crop yields and droughts were a warning of impending judgment. They had his law, which spoke clearly in the book of Deuteronomy about the national consequences of obedience and disobedience. In short, God was acting, and he would continue to act, but his people were not reacting by repenting. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. That is a bedrock that we stand on. God wants people saved, and he sends his grace to move on their hearts to enable them to decide for Christ. One source I read claims that in Africa alone, every day, 16,000 Muslims convert to Christianity. Another source says daily 35,000 conversions occur in Latin America. Daily 28,000 conversions occur in China. Missionaries in India report 100,000 conversions every month. God is not slack concerning his promises. He's long-suffering. Now, his long-suffering leads to our continued suffering while he waits, but the souls that are saved are precious. His long-suffering will not always wait, and that's what God tells his prophet beginning in verse 5. He says, look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They're terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. And then his mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. Now, the Chaldeans had not yet risen to prominence, but they would. The Chaldeans were people who lived in southern Babylonia, which would be the southern part of what we call Iraq today. In 731 BC, Ukinzer, a Chaldean, became king of Babylon. A few years later, Merodach Baladin, also a Chaldean, became king over Babylon. Then in 626 BC, Nabopolassar, Another Chaldean began what would be an extended period of time during which Babylon was ruled by a Chaldean king. And so the Chaldeans were a people, a tribe, a, a nation that took Babylon. And so you'll find sometimes the Bible refers to Babylon as Chaldea or the Chaldeans as Babylonians. It's interchangeable. Successors to uh, Nabopolassar were Nebuchadnezzar, Emmer, Merduk, Nabonidus, and Belshazzar. I just like saying those names. I, the, if, of all the biblical names, I love the Babylonian names. So if you're looking for names for your child, Nabonidus, call him little Nabi, uh, <laughs> Amel, Marduk, that's my, and Nabopolassar is one of my favorites. So anyway, those are all Chaldeans who ruled Babylon. Now, God is at work among nations. Daniel, in his prophecy, spoke of the succession of nations that would be world powers. He correctly and accurately listed Egypt, then Assyria, then Babylon, then Medo-Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome. He also spoke in the future of a revived Roman Empire. 
Nations rise, nations fall, and a great deal of it has to do with whether they obey or disobey God, which can be gauged to an extent by their violence. And we can certainly make a case that V is for violence in America. We don't need to be the most violent nation on earth in order to be on God's radar for judgment. It's not, God's not looking at the world and saying, okay, I want who's the most violent overall and I'll go after them. You never know what is going to happen. You, you don't know. You shouldn't be on God's radar at all for violence. Uh, there's a sense in which, given the light we've had in the form of the Bible and the gospel, we should be held to a higher standard than godless nations. We should not be number four on the list of abortions. The truth is we shouldn't be on that list at all. That alone is enough to cause alarm when it comes to a God who has said, if you disobey me, I'm going to have to do something. It hit Habakkuk in the face that God was going to judge Judah. If it hits you in the face that America is ripe for judgment, let's appeal to God for revival because it's repentance that we require. It's turning to God. The Ninevites, Jonah. You remember the story. You've seen the veggie tale. Jonah goes with a half-hearted message to, Ju- to Nineveh and says, in 40 days, you're toast. And then he leaves and goes sits to wait for God to destroy them, hoping that he would. What did the Ninevites do? They didn't become preppers. They didn't say, oh, I've got 40 days to find a cave and stock it with dinty more beef stew and bullets so that I can survive God's judgment upon this city. They repented. And what did God do? He said, all right, I don't need to judge you. I won't judge you. I don't want to judge you. I'm not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. This nation, our nation, I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know what we need. We need national repentance. And ultimately, that's the only thing that will save us. When V is for violence, abide in the Lord, uh, beginning in verse 12. Be careful what you pray for could summarize the next set of verses. Habakkuk wanted God to do something to bring the nation of Judah to its spiritual senses, but he strongly disagreed with God's plan. Verse 12, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have appointed them for judgment, O Rock. You have marked them for correction. Now, this is almost a conclusion uh, to what uh, Habakkuk is going to say next because he has come to some realizations about the Lord. For example, God is from everlasting means he is always working providentially to accomplish what he has set forth in his word. For the Jews, it meant God would not allow them to be destroyed. For us, it means that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. He says, God is my holy one, meaning among other things that he was God's special project and that God is working all things together for the good. He says, we shall not die. For us, we see that Jesus Christ has conquered death and Hades, will be resurrected or raptured. It makes us more than conquerors, no matter the outward circumstances. God has appointed non-believers for judgment. While that comforts us, knowing the bad guys will get what is coming to them, every one of those 219 guys that Rambo killed, they had it coming. Remember, there's a line in one of the Arnold Schwarzenegger movies he killed a bunch of people, and he says, yeah, but they were all bad. 
And so we have that sense of justice, but at the same time, we should have compassion for non-believers because what they've got coming ultimately is an eternity separated from God alone, suffering torment in the lake of fire. O rock is a great declaration of the abiding strength of God. He is indeed the rock of ages, cleft for me as we sometimes sing. And finally, Habakkuk declares, you have marked them for correction. God marking the Chaldeans means he had set boundaries for their behavior. There were places that they could go so far and no further. And correction means that they could not destroy the Jews, but they were God's instrument to punish and discipline them. And so Habakkuk understands you have marked them, you've given them parameters in order to discipline and punish us, and you will not go back on your promises to us. It was a little oversimplified, but in the recent film, God's Not Dead, the main characters reminded themselves about God's character. You remember what they said all the time? They'd say, God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. It was a little mantra in the middle of the movie a couple, three times to remind you that when you're going through difficulties, God has not changed, but he remains uh, for you and not against you. Now, standing in the cleft of the Rock of Ages, Habakkuk was nevertheless still troubled, as you imagine he would be. Who wouldn't be, knowing that a vicious predator is going to come upon your nation? He says in verse 13, you're of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Now, was Habakkuk talking about the Chaldeans? Probably, but his comments accurately describe Judah at that time, too. On the one hand, the Chaldeans were far more wicked, but considering that the Jews had the covenants and the scripture and the prophets and the priesthood and the temple, who really is more wicked? And so on the one hand, you could complain, God, how can you use a wicked people to judge your people? And then you have to step back and say, oh, it's because we're pretty wicked. In fact, we're more wicked from one point of view because we shouldn't be. We know better. Those poor Chaldeans don't have the revelation that we have. They don't have the light that we have. None of us have gone to Babylon to share that with them. And so it's it's not a good argument. So Habakkuk throws out an analogy now. Seeing the rise of pagan nations against other nations, he compares the stronger nations, the conquerors, to successful fishermen. He says in verse 14, Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net. They gather them in their dragnet. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet because by them their share is sumptuous and their food is plentiful. Shall they therefore empty their net, continue to slay nations without pity? Again, I suggest that since God was dealing with the Jews as a nation and had already for quite some time been warning them by various unmistakable means, his sending another nation against them was the appropriate response. And after you've sent prophets and famines and, and examples and, and everything, you're, you're, you're really limited, if you're God, if I can say that, to what you can do. And one of the things you have to do is send an enemy uh, to overcome And the fact that it was a godless nation only exposes their shame all the more at failing to be the people of God. What's a prophet to do in all this? Verse 1 of chapter 2, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. 
Now, when he compares himself to a watchman on the rampart, Habakkuk was obviously submitting to God's plan. He says, if you're going to send the Chaldeans, then I'd better be watching for them like a watchman on the wall. But Habakkuk wasn't an average watchman. He's a spiritual watchman. When he saw the Chaldeans approaching, he would see God's hand behind it all for Judah's good and God's glory. As believers, we must look behind or beyond what is happening to its spiritual importance. Our eyes may never be open to see armies of angels surrounding our enemies, but we know there are armies of angels. Wherever you find yourself, there's a battle for souls waging. The eternal destiny of folks you're in contact with is more important than your temporary trials. We need to look beyond the obvious to the spiritual. God always wants to elevate our thinking in whatever situation we're in and say, what is the spiritual importance of this situation? What is really going on behind the scenes? Who here needs the gospel? And how am I going to represent Christ in this situation? Uh, I will watch to see what he will say in me is a possible translation in this verse. I'm not sure what Habakkuk might have meant, but I take it to mean for us as Christians that we can be led by the indwelling Holy Spirit as we listen for his still small voice. You know, as a Christian, you're always having a dialogue with God. He's ministering to you. He's showing you things or speaking to you through his word. And so uh, as watchmen uh, bringing the gospel to others, we want to be listening to God for those uh, instructions. And he says, when I am corrected, and that's better translated when I am reproved. Now, this could mean Habakkuk expected to be corrected and reproved by God for daring to question his methods, If that's the case, we know that any correction or any reproof that comes from God is done because he loves us as our gracious heavenly father. I think Habakkuk meant he was going to be reproved by his fellow citizens in Judah once he began proclaiming this message to them that God was raising up the Chaldeans to conquer them. We don't know as much about Habakkuk as we do about Jeremiah. We know that Jeremiah was severely criticized and persecuted for preaching this same message. He was rebuked and reviled by his own people, yet he went on preaching it because he had a burden. He would continue to answer, to continue to proclaim the message he had been given. Now, this image of Habakkuk on the rampart, on the wall, in the watchtower, it isn't one of retreat into spiritual seclusion. You can't think of Habakkuk as a guy who went to wait on God in his prayer closet uh, you know, all by himself. He says, I'm going to wait on God, but I'm going to do it in an active way as a watchman on the wall who is warning people of the approach of the Chaldeans as if I actually see them coming already. And so it's an active obedience. It's an active waiting that I call abiding. Disciplined waiting involving ministering to others, not withdrawing from them uh, to, to gain your own personal strength. As I said, I don't know what's in store for the United States, and so I'm going to go on making an appeal to God for revival. I do know what I'm supposed to be doing and what we are empowered to be doing. It's to be sharing the good news that Jesus died, rose from the dead, and is coming back. And as much as we want to give other answers to the problems in our society, this is the one bedrock answer that will make a difference when people turn to Christ and have their sins forgiven and are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. The Declaration of Independence mentions life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We value those as citizens. As believers, we have a declaration of dependence upon God 
We should value spiritual life, the giving of liberty to those held captive by the devil and by sin, and the pursuit of holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Let's pray.